And now, stay tuned for the program that is rated tops in popularity for a longer period of time than any other West Coast program in radio history. Transcribe for Christmas to enable the cast and the entire production staff to enjoy Christmas Day at home with their family. Meanwhile, I hadn't wished the guy dead, but... KMC Turner. I am the whistler. 88.5 FM. Now that he was. And 100.7 FM in Marion and Polk County. And I know many things, for I walk by night. Salem and Tyson. And nobody in the States knew Paul or what he looked like. Taking over the entire planet. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. At KMC.org. It was a gamble, all right, but there was... The fortune in the kitty. Mid Valley Mutations. Welcome to the holiday season with the Whistler and the Mysterious Traveler. Things are about to get strange. Are you ready for a weird Christmas? Now, he is the host of Mid-Valley Mutations, Austin Ridge. And welcome to another exciting edition of Mid-Valley Mutations, podcast edition. Uh, That's right. Uh, you know, unfortunately, again, we had to deliver a program uh, from the home studio. We, we could not make it to KMUZ. Uh, this week, it was because uh, we're moving. Uh, all the entire studio, all of our gear, uh, my home, everything uh, moved uh, on the same day that uh, we were supposed to be on the air. And uh, you know, I naively thought I could do both, uh, but uh, I pretty much fell asleep after I was done moving. So uh, there was no live uh, Mid-Valley Mutations, uh, unfortunately. But uh, that doesn't mean that we can't bring you a little podcast. Tonight, we have for you some old-time radio classics. Uh, We're making it a little bit weird for Christmas. That's right. We like to have things get strange this time of year and uh what better way to do it we have uh some excellent programs for you uh one of them uh from the whistler uh, an excellent anthology show which was hosted by a mysterious creature character call him what you will uh omniscient and uh usually knew what was going to happen well before any of the characters in the story do uh and, uh, yeah, that program ran for a long time. Uh, in fact, it had the uh, similar opening to The Saint, and so uh, I was often kind of confused with those. Uh, whistling, uh, footsteps at night. It's kind of hard to um, not use that when you're doing a kind of noir-ish style program. Nevertheless, we are bringing you Letter from Cynthia, a Whistler program from Christmas Day, 1949. Keep listening, it's Mid-Valley Mutations. I am the Whistler, and I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. And now, for the Signal Oil Company, the Whistler's strange story. Letter from Cynthia. To the holiday staff on duty at the small hospital on the outskirts of a small town on the coast of Southern California... Christmas night was much like any other night. Not quite, of course, for the spirit of the season was in the air. A tree austerely but beautifully decorated in a motif of silver and white stood majestically alone in the center of the reception lobby. 
The attractive receptionist at the desk, who doubled on the switchboard at night, glanced eagerly at a dozen festively wrapped packages and presents left for her earlier in the day by various members of the staff. From the church across the street, the soft melody of a Christmas carol floated through the open window on the far side. The sound of footsteps descending the stairs on the right caused the girl to glance up as one of the newer doctors who was serving his internship strolled casually to the desk. Thought I'd come down for a little breather. Kind of slow tonight, Patty. Is that bad for Christmas night? What do you want from Santa Claus anyway, Dr. Andrews? A, a couple of emergency appendectomies? <laughs> no, I didn't mean that. I just meant it's kind of... Oh, sure, I know. And it suits me fine. I got two hours sleep today and eight hours in front of me here at this desk. Oh, that's bad, Pat. You'll never see your grandchildren if you keep that up. Mm, people were dropping in all day long. You know how it is Christmas Day. Mm. Good night, Patty. Hope you had a nice Christmas. Oh, I did, Dr. Peters. Thanks for the nice present. You're welcome. Good night, Doc. Good night, Neil. Yeah, Patty, it's like I said. A guy like you needs eight hours sleep a day. Did you get eight hours sleep today, Doctor? Ten. <laughs> you would. You know, you're an odd man, Dr. P Andrews. Odd? Well, how do you mean? I mean, I don't know. You act like there's something bothering you. Like there's something on your mind all the time. Well, maybe there is. Well, everybody has things on their mind. You could still go out and dance, have fun, like the other doctors do. The single ones, I mean. Too busy. I'm still an intern, you know. Make it sound like a sentence. <laughs> yes? Outside line? Yes, sir. Oh, here, Doctor, I almost forgot. Hmm? Maybe this pretty pink envelope will change your viewpoint. Hmm, a letter. When did this come? I don't know. I just came on duty ten minutes ago. Why don't you open it? What? Dr. Andrews. Your hands are trembling. I believe your viewpoint's changed already. Yes, Neil, your hands are trembling as you recognize the handwriting. Read the return address on the envelope. The address of lovely Cynthia Walker. She's out of your life now, isn't she, Neil? No. She'll never be out of your life, will she? You're just out of hers. You walk across the lobby, choose a chair near a light, and stare into space for a moment. The memory of that last moment with Cynthia crowding every other thought from your mind. It isn't pleasant to recall, is it, Neil? The unfortunate accident that cost you your reputation, your position, and the love of Cynthia Walker. At the very beginning of your career as an intern in an important hospital... You remember Cynthia's thoughtless, angry words that followed. Yes, looking back to that day more than a year ago, it's hard to believe now that a few hours could have made so much difference in your future. But they did. And as you try to read the words on the scrap of paper, Cynthia's letter in your hand, you know that one man is responsible for it all. Charles Arthur Bennett, the man who lied when the truth would have cleared you. Charles Arthur Bennett. The man who called himself your best friend. The sound of an ambulance wheeling into the receiving room below shatters your train of thought. Across the room, a yellow light flashes on the switchboard. You turn quickly back to the letter. But your thoughts are blurred and... You know you won't have time to finish your letter before you get the call you're sure is coming. Yes, Doctor. Yes, Doctor. Yes. I'll make out the registration card right away. Dr. Andrews. Yes? Yes, Pat? Admitting room? No, Miss Stevens is busy. 412 has had a relapse. Oh. They're taking the emergency to the third floor. Dr. Graham wants you to go to the third floor drug room. What kind of accident? Car crash. Traumatic and hemotractic shock. Uh -huh. Patient very weak. Dr. Graham wants you to prepare injections of sereptamine and sacralin. Take them to the operating room, third floor. Right. I was afraid we might have one of these before the day was over. You get any details? No, only it was an automobile accident. The man's unconscious, but according to the identification card in his wallet, his name is Charles Bennett, salesman. Who did you say? Bennett. 
Charles Arthur Bennett, Los Angeles. It's a shock, isn't it, to realize what's happened. For more than a year, your resentment of Charlie Bennett has smoldered. And now the girl at the switchboard tells you that he's here in the hospital where you're now interning, the victim of an automobile accident, that you have to prepare the drugs that might save his life. Might save his life. As you hurry up the stairs along the hallway to the laboratory, your thoughts go back to that night more than a year ago. The circumstances were quite different then, weren't they, Neil? Because, although you didn't then realize it, that night you were at the mercy of Charlie Bennett. The night which began at a birthday party for Charlie Bennett more than a year ago at the home of a mutual friend. But as far as you were concerned, there were just the three of you. Cynthia, Charlie, your best friend, and you. Yes, Neil, things were much different then. <laughs> oh, it's a wonderful party. I wish I didn't have to leave right in the middle of it. Well, if you must, you must. I'll drive you home. No, darling, I've already phoned for our taxi. Now, this is the first time you've been off duty from the hospital in a long time. I want you to stay here and relax and have fun. Okay, but I might get into trouble, you know. <laughs> I trust you. You're a big boy now. Or I wouldn't have told you I'd marry you. Have you told Charlie? No. No, not yet. I, I'll tell him tomorrow. I don't want to seem conceited, but... Well, telling him tonight that I'm going to marry you, it, it just might spoil his birthday party. Yes, it would. By the way, where is Charlie? Oh, he's around. Over in the corner, I think. That island completely surrounded by the ocean of blondes. Well, I wouldn't think of invading that territory. Just to tell him good night. You tell him for me, will you, Neil? Sure. You really have to go. Oh, I'm afraid so. Jane's only in town for the night, and I don't get to see my sister very often. My taxi ought to be here by now. Now it's your night off, dear. You have fun. You interns don't get out of that hospital often enough. And besides, the champagne is wonderful. Anything you say, darling. <laughs> Reluctantly, you see Cynthia to a cab and come back to the birthday party for Charlie. You take Cynthia's advice, too. Enjoy a little champagne. Make party talk with other friends, and you do have a good time, Neil. You relax for the first time in weeks. In another hour or two, most of the crowd is gone, and finally, you even convince Charlie that it's time to go home. And in the lobby, going out. Why don't you leave your car here, Charlie, and go home in style, like I am? What do you mean, in style? Leave your car here. Get a taxi. Hey, what's the idea? I can drive. Oh, don't tell me the good doctor's in his cups from a little champagne. Oh, no, no, <laughs> not really, but I just don't want to do any driving, that's all. Well, you don't have to do any. A little bit of champagne didn't bother me. <laughs> Look, tell you what. We live close to each other. We'll use your car and... Yeah, I'll pick mine up tomorrow. I'd sure rather take a taxi. Oh, aren't any taxis around anyway? There's a stand about three blocks away. Not at night, Neil. Oh, besides, you'll need your car to get to the hospital in the morning. Come on, Neil, boy. <laughs> I'm okay. Uh, all right, if you're sure. Let's go. But take it easy now. Once in the car, you make one more effort to talk Charlie out of driving, but to no avail. You're getting a little weary of the slight argument, so you let him drive your car. And after the first few blocks, you decide you have nothing to worry about. Charlie seems to be driving satisfactorily. Slightly over the speed limit, but everything seems to be all right until he suddenly turns a corner sharply. That's the last you remember for a little while. When you open your eyes, you feel a dizziness, a dull pain at your temple, 
And oh, someone's talking come somewhere. Come on, fella. That's it. Come on, boy. Uh, come on. Here. Are uh, you hurt? Hurt? Oh, no. I, uh, no, officer. I, no. Uh, not much, I guess. Just a bump on the head. Uh, hey, that lamppost made quite an impression on your car, though. What's the idea of driving like that? Oh, uh, me? Charlie was driving. Oh, Charlie was driving. Yeah, he's... He's gone? He sure is absent. Say, you're a little on the woozy side, friend. Well, Charlie, where, where's Charlie? Hey, come on, chum. That's enough about Charlie. Now, how much have you had to drink, anyway? I haven't had much to drink. Look here, officer. Charlie was here. I know he was here. No one was here, chum. I heard the crash around the corner and came straight here. No Charlie, no nobody. Just you. And the little man who wasn't here. But he couldn't have gone. Charlie! Yeah, that's all, chum. We got a swell place downtown where you can uh, sleep on it, huh? <laughs> It's like a nightmare, isn't it, Neil? You're bewildered and confused by what's happened. It's all a mistake, isn't it? A horrible mistake. And Charlie will show up soon and explain everything. Then you're booked at police headquarters and spend the rest of the night pacing back and forth in jail. Finally, in the early morning, someone is there to put up your bail. <laughs> Hello, Cynthia. Hello, Neil. I, I came as quickly as I could. Thanks. Thanks for... Uh... Springing me. Come along, Neil. I'll drive you home. How did you find out I was here? The whole story is in the morning papers. And it mentions your connection with the hospital, too. Well, I suppose so. Dr. Rogers called me about it. He, he was quite concerned. Well, he needn't have been. We'll get this whole thing cleared up in no time. No time at all. Oh, I, I hope so, Neil. Sure. As soon as I see Charlie Bennett. Charlie? Yeah, you'll tell him what really happened. He was driving the car. It was all his fault. I was just... What's the matter, Cynthia? Why are you looking at me like that? Well, I... I've already talked with Charlie. Well, he told you then how it really happened. Charlie said he wasn't with you last night when it happened. He took a cab. He went home alone. It leaves you stunned, doesn't it, Neil? You're certain there must be some mistake. But once Charlie understands how much it means to you, he'll realize what's happened and tell the truth. It's too late to prevent the unfavorable publicity for the hospital. But at least you could be cleared in Dr. Rogers' eyes and in Cynthia's. You see Cynthia safely home and then take a taxi directly to Charlie's apartment. He isn't there. But the desk clerk lets you in and you settle down to wait and to think. Nearly two hours later, a key sounds in the door. Neil. Hiya, pal. Why don't you tell me you were coming? I would have waited. I didn't plan on it. The desk clerk let me in. You talked to Cynthia on the phone this morning, didn't you, Charlie? Cynthia? Yeah, crack it on, naturally. She was worried about you. Naturally. And what did you tell her? Oh, that's what's worrying you, huh? Well, I didn't really mean to do it, Neil, but I had to. Uh, want a drink? No. Mind if I have one? Look, Charlie, I'm trying to give you a chance to explain. Okay, okay. No reason to get sore. You lied to Cynthia. Why? Well, I told you I had to. You know, as a salesman, I have to drive a car to make a living, What's Neil? that got to do with it? Only everything, that's all. Look, Neil, I didn't bother to mention it to anyone, but I was in a scrape three weeks ago. I got hauled up for driving under the weather. I got off with a fine and a warning that time. Wait a but... minute. You mean you deliberately let me take the rap for your accident last night? Well, I tell you, I couldn't help it. Do you know what a spot this has put me in? The hospital has a reputation they're pretty jealous of, you know. Sure, and I've got a job. And so have I. I think you'd better put down that drink and get your coat on, Charlie. Why? Because you're coming with me to explain to Dr. Rogers. Then we're going together to see Cynthia. Oh, what good would that do? It's all over now, Neil. You mean you're refusing? I mean I went home in a taxi last night alone told my story once, and I don't see anything to gain by changing it now. Suddenly it occurs to you that Charlie has a more important reason for lying. His job is only part of it. He's always wanted to marry Cynthia, too, despite your long friendship. He believes that anything's fair in love or war. It's as simple as that. And with you out of the way, he's sure he'll have a clear field. And Cynthia, after all this, what about Cynthia, Neil? You have to be sure. Can you be sure of Cynthia now? Neil, I... I just can't understand it. You don't believe me, do you? 
But you do believe Charlie. Why would he lie about a thing like this? Because with me out of the way, he thinks he could marry you. Neil, I've known Charlie for years. He wouldn't do a thing like that. Besides, he's your best friend. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's proved that, hasn't he? Neil, aren't you forgetting that Charlie wasn't found in the wreck? That you were? You all alone? Your story is... Well, it's too fantastic. The police don't believe it. And Charlie says it couldn't have been that way. And you, Cynthia... What do you say? Oh, Neil, what can I say? Do you think I want to believe this? And Dr. Rogers, the hospital, what do they say? Naturally, I resigned. I couldn't do anything else. I don't blame them for what they think, any of them. But I know I'm right, and... Never mind, Cynthia. I guess there's no use in going over all that again. Neil... You're not going. Why not? I don't seem to be getting anywhere. What's going to happen, Neil? Will you... Well, do you think you'll be able to get an internship somewhere else? I think so. I'm just as qualified as I ever was. My previous record was good. And I've learned a lot. Sorry this has been too much for you, Cynthia. I haven't You wouldn't consider marrying a man you didn't believe, would you? I want to believe you, Neil. More than I ever wanted to believe anything. Well, maybe you will someday. Maybe you'll learn the truth. When you do, let me know. You'll be able to find me. Yes, it all happened more than a year ago, didn't it, Neil? You cut off all contacts with your friends in Los Angeles. You've often wondered if Cynthia ever married Charlie. And every time you've wondered, your hatred toward him has grown deeper. You've often thought of killing him, haven't you? Yes, often. And now on Christmas night, more than a year later, in a small out-of-the-way hospital, fate places the life of Charlie Bennett squarely in your hands. The switchboard operator has told you that he's in the operating room unconscious, seriously injured in an auto accident. And you've been assigned to prepare the medication which will spell life or death for him. Just a little too much, or not quite enough. It's almost too easy, isn't it? Not the slightest suspicion will be attached to you. You smile as you enter the drug room and find another intern there. What's the emergency, Neil? Car wreck. You assisting? No, just preparing the sereptamine and saccharin shots. Well, it must have been a pretty bad accident. I'm afraid so. You ever stop to think about the power of these drugs? Just the right amount means almost certain recovery. And too much or too little, oblivion. Do you always get this philosophical at Christmas? No, no, but I guess this case made me think about it more than usual. You see, uh, I know the guy. Oh, friend? You said it. What a friend. Oh, kind of an unusual situation, isn't it? A very unusual situation. Well, Neil, the die is cast, isn't it? You've donned your sterile mask and gown and prepared the injection. Carried them to the operating room, where you placed them on the instrument tray. Without even a glance at the masked, sheet-covered patient. You note Dr. Graham's nod of dismissal and quietly leave the operating room. Where Charlie Bennett's chance for life or death lies squarely in your hands. You never dreamed you'd have such an opportunity, did you, Neil? After removing your mask and gown, you return to the hallway. Wait by a window near the operating room as the melody from the church again drifts in through the window. You wonder whether you're glad or sorry at what you've done. Then you remember the disgrace Charlie Bennett brought on you, your shattered hopes, the happiness you might have had with Cynthia. And you know the answer. Even if you could, you wouldn't change the situation in the slightest. You pause under a ceiling light and decide to finish Cynthia's letter. And now, as another Christmas approaches... I realize how hasty I seemed in my judgment. Suddenly your heart beats faster. As you realize she's still Miss Cynthia Walker. You can almost hear the words as the melody of her voice haunts your memory. 
But you were even more hasty in your action. Your sudden, abrupt leaving. Not letting me know where you were. I know now how wrong I was to doubt you. But even when my doubts were deepest, I loved you. You told me once a woman loves in spite of a man's weakness. Not because of his strength. Remember, Neil? Well, so it was and is with me and you. I haven't changed, and I can't believe that you have. Merry Christmas, Cynthia. You turn away, stare out the window. Suddenly you're horrified and ashamed that you, a doctor, bound by the sacred oath of Hippocrates, have allowed your hatred for Charlie Bennett to bring you to the point that it did. Finally, the door to the operating room opens. The still form is wheeled silently past you. You continue to stare out the window. You light a cigarette and wait for Dr. Graham to emerge from the operating room. As he opens the operating room door and enters the hallway, you walk slowly toward him. How's the patient, Doctor? Well, the patient's going to be all right. I'm glad you were around. Sereptamine's a godsend. Uh, may I uh, have a cigarette, Andrews? Oh, sure, Doctor. Oh, thank you. I wish Sereptamine had been available when I first started practice. <clears throat> Matter of fact, I wish I were young like you, just beginning. Oh, you'll be a great doctor one day, Andrews. Will I? I'm sure of it. You're honest. Duty comes first with you. Why, you could no more evade it than commit murder. No, I guess I couldn't. But I almost made a terrible mistake a little while ago. A mistake that could have been fatal to your patient. Mm, but you didn't. No. No, and I don't think I'll ever be tempted to make a similar mistake again. I'm sure you won't, whatever it was. No, the practice of medicine's in your heart, above everything. Yes, I guess it is. Oh, it is. I've always known that. That's why I appointed you. Thank you, Doctor. Uh, when can I speak with Mr. Bennett? Oh, any time you wish. He's lying down in my office. Bennett wasn't seriously injured, just uh, knocked out temporarily. He was driving the car. You mean someone else was... Oh, our patient was the young lady with him. It seems they were on the way out here to the hospital to see one of our interns. She'll be okay. Doctor, who was she? Well, her name's, uh, uh, Walker. Cynthia Walker. Let that whistle be your signal for the Signal Oil program, The Whistler, each Sunday night at this same time. Featured in tonight's transcribed story were David Ellis, Isabel Jewell, and Paul Fries. The Whistler was produced and directed by George W. Allen, with story by Edward Bloodworth, music by Wilbur Hatch, and was transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. The Whistler is entirely fictional, and all characters portrayed on The Whistler are also fictional. Any similarity of names or resemblance to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. Remember, at this same time next Sunday, another strange tale by The Whistler. That was Letter from Cynthia by The Whistler, a Christmas Day broadcast from 1949 featuring William Foreman as The Whistler. There's plenty more old-time radio fun coming uh, in a bit, but first, uh, weather computer, uh, what's going on out there this uh, Christmas Eve? Thank you, Austin. This is the Mid-Valley Mutations Weather Computer, and here is a look at the local weather, brought to you by the holiday season. Yes, we like to kid, and make jokes, and have a good time, but every once in a while it is important to remember the things that fill our hearts, and make every day a little bit better. If you can, within your means, please look to those around you, who are in need and give a little more than you would normally. All we can do is the best that we can, 
I think Yogi Berra said that. Tonight, cloudy skies early, then partly cloudy after midnight. Low of 31 degrees. Winds light and variable, south by southwest at 5 miles per hour. Sunrise at 7.48 a.m. Yay, we're past the shortest day of the year. Whoop whoop. Christmas Eve, intervals of clouds and sunshine. High of 41 degrees. Winds south at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Sunset at 4.35 p.m. Santa showed a pretty decent weather for delivering presents Saturday night. Better get to sleep early. And that was a look at the local weather, brought to you by the weather computer, and the holiday season. I may only be a simple machine running software, but maybe if we all try to help those around us and set good examples, perhaps the next year won't feel like the impending blue screen of death that everyone makes it out to be. Together, we can make a difference, even if it is on a small scale. Happy holidays from the weather computer, and mid-valley mutations. What am I doing, getting all sappy and emo around the holidays? You'd think I was some sentimental calculator or something. Ahem, that's what she said. Hehe, <laughs> I've still got it. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the holiday season. With the Whistler and the Mysterious Traveler. Things are about to get strange. Mid-Valley Mutations. Are you ready for a weird Christmas? That's right. We are bringing you our weird Christmas podcast edition of Mid-Valley Mutations because we were so exhausted by moving our studio from one place to another and then our home and doing that all day long. It was very exhausting, but we are bringing you a podcast nonetheless. Now, we just heard a uh, classic uh, Whistler holiday story, and, uh, you know, a show that was very comparable in many ways was The Mysterious Traveler. Ha, ha, ha. And uh, we have a story for you from that program entitled Christmas Story. Now, uh, The Mysterious Traveler had a train motif at the beginnings uh, and endings of the programs. The conceit of the show was that you would be sitting down next to him and he would be telling you this story. Uh, However, uh, sometimes the stories that he told were so subjective or from a point of view that it was hard to know how The Mysterious Traveler would know that information, and so he kind of took on an omniscient quality as well. Uh, very similar to The Whistler, uh, considering it was an anthology program. Anyway, let's uh, dip in and hear Christmas Story from The Mysterious Traveler, Christmas Day 1951. It's Mid-Valley Mutations, holiday style. Mutual Broadcasting System presents The Mysterious Traveler, written, produced, and directed by Robert A. Arthur and David Coven, and starring two of radio's foremost personalities, Leon Janney and Ann Shepard, in Christmas Story. This is The Mysterious Traveler, inviting you to join me on another journey into the realm of the strange and the terrifying. I hope you will enjoy the trip, that it will thrill you a little and chill you a little. So settle back, get a good grip on your nerves, and be comfortable, if you can, as we hear the tale of an enterprising young man. It's the drama I call Christmas Story. The name is Steve Farrell, and I've just gotten through playing Santa Claus. 
Yeah, you're looking at a guy who really played it to the hilt. It all started last month in Seattle. I was out of a job and down to my last few bucks. I was looking through the morning paper when I noticed this small ad in the personal column. Driving to New York, November 15th. Man wanted to assist in driving. Free transportation. Paul Harris, Hotel Royal. Well, I'd always wanted to see New York, and this was as good as any way of getting there, so I went up to this Hotel Royal to see this guy, Harris. Mr. Harris? Yes? My name's Farrell, Steve Farrell. I read your ad in the morning paper. Oh, yes. Won't you come in? Thank you. If you haven't already found someone to help you drive to New York, I'd like to offer my services. Well, as a matter of fact, I haven't. Uh, can you leave for New York a day after tomorrow? Sure, anytime. Well, good. Then why not come around at nine in the morning and we'll get off to an early start? Okay, Mr. Harris, nine it is. Lewiston, 30 miles. Lewiston, uh, that's Idaho, isn't it? Yeah, we're just crossing the state line into Idaho. Oh, this is all new to me. I, I was born and raised in Alaska. This is my first trip to the state. Well, you're going to see a lot of scenery between here and New York. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Life must have been pretty rugged in Alaska. Oh, it was. My parents were homesteaders. I never saw a city until a week ago when I arrived in Seattle. How come you're going to New York? Well, my parents died last year, and my grandfather, whom I've never seen, wrote asking me to come visit him. you never seen him, huh? No. No, there was uh, some sort of squabble between my parents and my grandfather before I was born, and, and they went to Alaska. And in all the years since then, my grandfather never wrote to them. Sounds like a stubborn guy. Yeah, he sure does. What are you going to New York for? Oh, mainly to look for a job. And I've always wanted to see the big city. I sure have I. It's a long way from Seattle to New York. And there wasn't a radio in the car, so we just talked. And mostly we talked about Paul. His life in Alaska, his parents, his grandfather. By the time we hit Columbus, Ohio, there wasn't a thing I didn't know about the guy. And from what he told me, his grandfather was loaded. And even more, he was the old man's only relative... It was obvious the kid was walking into a fortune. Yes, yeah, some guys had all the luck. You know, you ought to see an eye doctor. Your eyes seem to get tired awful quick. Well, the truth of the matter... Hey, look out, kid. We're starting to skid. No, don't jam on the brakes. That only makes it worse. Now, re reverse your wheel. I have. Steve, we're skidding off the road toward the mountain. Give me that wheel and do as I say. We're out of control. We're going over. <laughs> Paul's luck had run out. He'd never see all that dough that was waiting for him in New York. Yeah, it was then that it came to me. I hadn't wished the guy dead, but now that he was, and nobody in the States knew Paul or what he looked like, and on the other hand, I knew everything about him, well, it was a gamble, all right, but there was a fortune in the kitty. I went to work switching our clothes and all identification. A couple of hours later, I grabbed the train for New York. Paul, uh, I'm George Marlowe, your grandfather's attorney. How do you do, Mr. Marlowe? The Pennsylvania State Police informed me of the dreadful accident you had. I understand a man who was with you uh, was killed. Yes, a fellow by the name of Steve Farrell. I met him in Seattle. He assisted me with the driving. Too bad, but uh, thank heavens it wasn't you. It would have been your grandfather's death blow. How is he? Weak. Very weak. But eagerly waiting to see you. Uh, you can only spend a few minutes with your grandfather. And uh, excitement must be avoided by all means. I understand. And here we are. How is he, Joan? He's much better this afternoon. Good. Uh, Joan, uh, this is Paul Harris. Paul Joan Dietrich, your grandfather's nurse. How do you do? Hello. Paul. Is that you, Paul? Yes, sir. Come over here where I can see you. Yes, grandfather. 
So, you're Paul, my grandson. Yes, sir. Sit down by my bed. Let me look at you. All right, grandfather. Uh, you, you don't look like your mother. Must take after your father's side of the family. Yes, I do. You know, lying here for months, I've had a great deal of time to think things over. I was wrong, Paul. Your mother, she had a perfect right to marry anyone she wished. It was only my stubbornness that prevented the reconciliation. We all make mistakes. Yes, yes, but 30 years of not seeing my own flesh and blood. It's been lonely, Paul. So lonely. I think that's enough for now, Mr. Marshall. Paul can come and see you later, after your nap. Just a few more minutes, Bjorn. After your nap. She's a wonderful girl, Paul. But a tyrant. What do the doctors say, Mr. Marlowe? Week, month, several months at the outside. That bad, huh? Yes. Well, you must be tired after your trip. I have your suitcase taken to your room. Uh, Do you have any other luggage on the way? There's a small trunk coming, but it won't be here for weeks. If you need any money, just let me know. Your grandfather's placed a considerable sum at your disposal. Yeah, I was in. There was no question that I'd passed as Paul Harris. And why not? In the weeks that followed, not a day passed, and I didn't spend a few hours with the old man. He liked me, I could see that. And the funny thing is, I liked him, too. During our little chats, there were times I felt I was his grandson. And sitting in at these little sessions, not saying much, just watching with those gray eyes of hers was Joan Dietrich. She was one lovely dish. And I could feel things building between us. Whenever she got an evening off, we went out together. Having a good time? Wonderful. I love dancing. Why, Mr. Harris, what are we doing out here on the terrace? The music's in there. <laughs> Too many people in there. You know, if you don't make a pass at me soon, I'm going to get discouraged. <laughs> Ours is a short acquaintance. Three weeks. <laughs> What's the time got to do with it? <laughs> the day I walked into my grandfather's room, first saw you, you knew this moment would come. Mm. Oh, darling. I feel the same way, baby. So I were flying. Love me? You know I do. And why the tears? Oh, I do love you. And I want to believe in you, but I'm so confused. So confused. About what? Go on. I want to hear. Are you... Really, Paul Harris? What makes you ask that? In your talks with Mr. Marshall, several things you said seemed strange. Such as? Your grandfather spoke of a restaurant in San Francisco, and you said you knew it. Yet if you are Paul Harris, how could you not? Paul Harris has never been to San Francisco. I might have taken in San Francisco on the way to New York, you know. What else bothers you? You mentioned the television show you'd seen six months ago. There is no television in Alaska. If you're Paul Harris, how could you have seen it? People up in Alaska see kinescopes of television shows, baby. They're shown like movies. Darling, just tell me I'm wrong. That's all I want to hear. I wish I could tell you I'm Paul Harris. But I'm not. You're not? No. The name is Farrell. Steve Farrell. Steve Farrell? Hmm. Wasn't that the fellow that was killed in that... It was Paul Harris who was killed. You changed identity. Yes. Oh, how could you? How could you? I was tired of being broke. Of going from one lousy job to another. I saw a chance to grab a fortune. And took it. 
What are you going to do? I should go to the police. I can't. Mr. Marshall thinks you're his grandson. He's extremely fond of you. If the truth were to come out, it would kill him. Is that the only reason you can't go to the police? Oh, Steve, what are we going to do? Nothing. Nothing. That's right. I'm going on being Paul Harris until the old man dies. Then I'm taking the estate. You can't, Steve. You can't. Why not? While the old man's alive, I'm making him happy. If I get his estate when he dies, who loses by it? It isn't as though he has other relatives. Why shouldn't I get it? Oh, it's wrong, Steve. It's wrong. It's wrong only if you're caught, baby. Only if you're caught. What you doing up here on the roof? Just getting a little fresh air while Mr. Marshall sleeps. How is he? He can't last more than a few days. Who are you crying for? The old man? Or me? Both of you. Oh, Steve, ever since the other night when you told me, I haven't been able to think of anything else. It's wrong, Steve. It's so wrong. Who am I hurting if I get the estate? I deserve it if anyone does. At least I'm making the old man happy in his last hours. What if you're caught? Do you realize they'd send you to prison? That's the chances you take, baby. Besides, who's going to get wise to me? There's Mr. Marlowe, and he's nobody's fool. Just one little slip, Steve, and he'll be on to you. Marlowe's a sharp citizen, all right, but I don't intend to make that one slip. Someone's coming up onto the roof. Hello, you two. Thought I'd find you up here. Hello. How are you, Mr. Marlowe? Quite well, thank you. I understand uh, Mr. Marshall's asleep. Yes, I left Mrs. Walker to look after him. He should be waking up soon. Maybe we better go down. My grandfather has... Oh! What's the matter? Something in your eye, Paul? Yes, it's a cinder. Oh, left eye, huh? Yes. But stop rubbing it. Put your handkerchief over it. Yeah. That's it. He stings like the devil. Go on over and sit on the chair. And I'll uh, try to take it out for you. You want me to, uh... Assist you to the chair? No, no, I can still walk. Now sit down and tilt your head back. Hmm. That's it. Take the handkerchief away. Oh, I see it. Hold still. There. I got it. Thanks, John. I think we'd better go down now. Yeah, okay. You coming, Mr. Marlowe? What? Oh, yes, yes. I'm coming. Mrs. Walker said that Mr. Marshall was asleep when she looked in on him a few minutes ago. Seems he's still sleeping. Perhaps we'd better leave and wait until he wakens. No, no, no. I'm going to wake him. It's time for his medicine. Mr. Marshall? Mr. Marshall, time for your medicine. Mr. Marshall. Well, what is it, John? There's no pulse. Are you sure? Yes. He's dead. Well, at least the end came peacefully. He died in his sleep. Joan took the old man's death hard, and I felt pretty upset myself. Even with all that go-waiting. As for Marlowe, he was his usual efficient self, looking after all the details of the funeral. Maybe it was the tension I was under, but Marlowe seemed changed to me. He wasn't quite so friendly. And sometimes I turned to find him watching me, giving me the cold eye. I couldn't be sure whether it was my imagination or not. After we got back from the funeral, I was in my room when there was a knock on the door. Come in. Oh, hello, Joan. Come in. Mr. Marlowe's downstairs in the library. Wants to see you. Close the door. Anything wrong? Plenty. Whose trunk is that you're going through? Paul's. It arrived this morning while we were at the funeral. Steve, what's wrong? I've just been going through some of Paul's personal papers. I knew, of course, that he was 4F in the draft, but I never knew why. 
What are you trying to tell me? Paul was 4F in the draft because he was blind in the right eye. Blind in the right eye? Yes. That's why I've been getting the cold shoulder from Marlowe these past three days, ever since the afternoon we were on the roof. I don't understand. Somehow Marlowe knew that Paul was blind in the right eye, and when I got that cinder in my left eye, I covered it with my handkerchief. You told me to walk across the roof of the chair, sit down. Oh, yes, I remember. At that point, Marlowe offered to lead me to the chair. Knowing you were blind in the right eye and had your left eye covered with a handkerchief. Yes. When I walked over to the chair without hesitation, that must have started him thinking. Oh, Steve. Now, don't get panicky, baby. Marlowe can't be sure he's right. At the moment, he's just suspicious. But if he really investigates, I've got to kill the suspicion in his mind. Stop him from doing any checking. But how? I don't know yet. Come on, he's waiting for us in the library. Sorry to have kept you waiting, Mr. Marlowe. That's quite all right. If you'll excuse me, I'll go... No, Joan, don't go. No reason why you shouldn't hear what I have to say. Tomorrow, Christmas Day, I'll officially read Mr. Marshall's will. However, I don't think I'm violating a trust in telling you the contents of the will. Two weeks ago, Mr. Marshall had me draw up a new will, leaving his entire estate to you, uh, Paul. I see. He was quite taken by you, felt that you were a credit to his name. Why are you crying, Joan? Nothing. As administrator of Mr. Marshall's will, it is my duty to see to it that the heirs, or heir, receive their just inheritances. This duty I shall fulfill. I understand. I am responsible under law for the awarding of the huge estate left by Mr. Marshall. I shall have to... Is your eye troubling you? You've been doing nothing but rubbing it since you came into this room. Sorry, Mr. Marlowe. As you know, I'm blind in my right eye, and now and then my left eye feels quite strained. Particularly at a time like this. My grandfather's death, the funeral, you understand? Right. Yes. Yes, of course. You were saying? What? Oh, well, it's not important at the moment. I'll be here tomorrow at three for the reading of the will. See to it that all the servants are here. Very well. Good night, Joan. Paul? Good night, Mr. Marlowe. Good night. Steve? He's confused. That business of the eye. He doesn't know what to think now. Yeah, it stopped him for the moment. But only for a moment. Hard to tell. But I've got to do something once and for all to convince him I'm Paul Harris. I didn't get to sleep that night. I just tossed and turned, trying to come up with an angle that would kill Marlowe's suspicions. Maybe that business of rubbing my eyes had satisfied him. But I had to make sure... It was a difference between being handed a fortune and a prison sentence. This afternoon at three o'clock, the servants, Joan, Marlowe, and myself gathered in the library. The whole thing was over in an hour. The servants all congratulated me and left the library, leaving only the three of us there. I should like to offer a toast to Mr. Marshall's memory, if you'll permit me. Of course. This uh, was his favorite sherry. Joan? Thank you. Paul, thanks. Here's to Peter Marshall, a man who lived honorably, died honorably. May his heir be worthy of him. As the three of us raised our glasses to our lips and drank, I could see Marlowe watching me over the brim of his glass with those cold blue eyes of his. We set down our glasses, and I turned to give Joan a cigarette. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw Marlowe pick up one of the three wine glasses. Suddenly, I realized it was my glass he picked up. He held it casually, almost as if he didn't know he was holding it. In that moment, I was going nuts, trying to guess whether he was satisfied that I was Paul Harris or he was still suspicious and going after me. My fingerprints were on that glass, and the Army had a copy of those prints in Washington. This was it. Either I play mice and go for the fortune, or throw in my hand. Suddenly, I felt Joan's hand in mine. Um, say, Mr. Marlowe. Yes? 
You say this will, leaving me my grandfather's estate, is a new one. Yes, I drew it up only two weeks ago. What was the old will like? Well, under the old will, uh, your grandfather's estate went to charity. Hmm. I thought as much. Mr. Marlowe, Joan and I have been talking things over. I don't want the estate. I want it all to go to charity, as originally intended. Dear me, I seem to have dropped my glass. You realize, of course, what you would be giving up. I never really had it, Mr. Marlowe, so I hardly think I'll miss it. Joan and I will get along, won't we, baby? Oh, yes. Well, Paul, is that your considered decision? It is. It's a gesture worthy of Peter Marshall's grandson. Yes, and that little gesture did it. Any guy who gives up a $2 million estate can hardly be called an imposter, can he? No, sir. It's Christmas, and I've just played Santa Claus to the tune of two million bucks. The thing I keep wondering about is, what would have happened if I hadn't given up the estate? Would Marlowe have gone after me? Or was he satisfied that I was Paul Harris? Yes, sir. That little puzzle is going to give me plenty of thought for a long time to come. This is the mysterious traveler again. Did you enjoy our trip? What happened to Paul Harris? Or rather, I should say, Steve Farrell? He and Joan were married, and the poor fellow's now working at an honest living. Yes, uh, sometimes he thinks of the $2 million estate he gave up, uh, but then with taxes, what they are, what could he have kept in any case? Uh, only a fortune. Which uh, reminds me of a story in which another enterprising young man allowed himself to be killed for the sake of acquiring... Oh, you have to get off here. I'm sorry. But allow me to wish you a Merry Christmas before you go. And remember, I take this same train every week at this same time. just heard The Mysterious Traveler. Now you can enjoy other tense and exciting tales of The Mysterious Traveler in the current issue of The Mysterious Traveler magazine now available. In our cast will Leon Janney, Ann Shepard, and Lawson Zerbe, with Maurice Tarquin starred in the title role. Music under the direction of Emerson Buckley, composed by Richard DuPage. The Mysterious Traveler is written, produced, and directed by Robert A. Arthur and David Cogan. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. And that was Christmas Story by the Mysterious Traveler. A Christmas Day broadcast from 1951 from the Mutual Network. And that's going to do it for our weird Christmas program this week. Uh, Mid-Valley Mutations bringing you the uh, strange old-time radio for the holiday season. Uh, You know, it just... There was so much going on, we kind of needed a break, and it was nice to dig through these weird, uh, odd, and uh, uh, creepy uh, holiday stories. Uh, not to mention everything we've done all month long with detectives and whatnot. It's, it's, it's been a lot of fun, uh, and uh, we're going to continue the fun with our December 30th New Year's party broadcast we're gonna have a big celebration on air uh all your great friends from old time radio are gonna be there it's it it should be a lot of uh you know uh enjoyable entertainment guaranteed to celebrate new year's eve the way they used to uh and uh there's lots of cool things in 2017 brewing up you know i don't want to say too much but uh you know, um, we got some live stuff. We got some cool guests coming on the program. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a cool year, 2017. If only because it won't be 2016. 
What can I say? You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. And without you, there would be no program. Be seeing you. You know, friends, we feel mighty proud and pleased that you have invited Mid-Valley Mutations into your home so regularly throughout the year, and especially on Christmas Day. For all of us of the cast, I want to express our own sincere appreciation, too. During the seven consecutive years that has been broadcast, many of us have had the pleasure of celebrating Christmas with many of you a number of times. And believe me, we feel it a real honor that you consider us a part of your entertainment family. Tonight, in the states of California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Nevada, and Arizona, I want to say we hope that your Christmas has been a merry one. May your new year be filled with peace, prosperity, and the good health with which to enjoy the many blessings of living in the good old USA.